I think last week, we're, we're, we're kind of closing out this uh, chapter 16, which kind of is introduced by this idea that God is in his last all-out effort to break the stubbornness of men. That's the way I like to say it, to cause men to come to this place where I, I need God, I need Jesus Christ in my life. And uh, I mean, there's so many stories that run through my mind as a pastor when I say that. And I think about, um, I think about being in a hospital room, you know, and here's this guy on a bed and he's had to go through, um, you know, this, this horrible um, bone marrow transfusion process because he's got cancer, he's dying. And, you know, I've been coming and visiting him, coming and visiting him, and, and he's this guy who, you know, he, he just, he really has just kind of stayed distant from God. And during this time of cancer, here he is, and he's, you know what, I need, I just, I, maybe I need to pray more. I need, I need to talk to God more. And you're thinking, this is good. God's using this time in his life. And with that bone marrow, I mean, they, they take you down to nothing. You have to just get... I mean, they, they use chemo that just demolishes everything, and you're, you're about as low as you can possibly be when they give you that transfusion. And, and it, it may or it may not work. It may kill you, and it may cure you. You, you don't know when you go in. It cured him. It's, it saved his life. And I, I will still remember watching this man go from this place of, I'm desperate. I need help. God, God help me. To... I'm starting to feel better. To I'm starting to feel good again. To this place where I'll call on God when I need Him again, you know. And what is it within the spirit of man that we are taken captive, really, by uh, the world, by Satan, uh, by sin? To and we get get to that place where, as we looked at last week, Romans one, we'll say, "I'm not going to repent." I'm not going to turn around. I, I will resist this effort on the part of the Holy Spirit. So I, I think we see this in our world today. I, I sure run into it with a high degree of frequency. People who, they're willing to have nice conversations with you about God or about your church. But try to get serious with me. Talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Because I don't want anything to do with that. Because it means my life has to change. And, uh, and what the revelation is saying is absolutely what God is trying to do is just to take us and transform us and put, put to death that part in us that likes to hold on to this world and the stuff of this world and raise us up to become new people. And that's an ongoing uh, uh, process. So as we get into this section, it's, it's this last effort of God where all of what he has been doing becomes intensified. And we, we saw that we made this comparison, one-fourth, one-third, all. You know, as you, as you go through the different uh, circles and look at what's going on on earth during each one of these time periods, uh, what's happening is God is escalating. He is, he is getting uh, more and more determined to break the stubborn will of human beings. Leading up to that, what we call that half a time, where... Um, I, I, like, I like Brother Mike Dobish's analogy this morning. He says, you know, all these plagues, these bowls that are being poured out upon the world, they're, they're coming. Boom, 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 boom. It's not like, well, here's one and we go for 50 years and here's another one in 50 years. They're coming, boom, in that half a time. 
And uh, Mike says, you know, you're going to have to have like a, a bee suit on, <laughs> a fog machine and a baseball bat. And, you know, I'm like, you can't get water. You can't get water. You know, I'm watching this on television in, in Flint, Michigan, right? And answer Michigan, where they discover, oh, whoops, whoops, we, we're, we've been giving you water with lead in it and killing you, um, you know, for for, I, I don't know, how, how long have they been doing that? A couple of years? You know, what, whoops. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, when now people are like, whoa, I'm not drinking that water. Now they're having to drink. Imagine, imagine Earth where you can't get water. And you want to talk about people becoming desperate and killing each other and you, just the, the turmoil over we've got to get water. You die without it, right? So there's a desperateness about it. And I think there's a desperateness about life on earth in that half a time. But think about this. There's a greater desperateness in God's heart to bring those people back to himself. You may die. Okay, you may die physically in this world. You're going to, right? But I'm desperate that you know me when you take your last breath. That's that God who's in pursuit of human beings. Um, we talked last week about Armageddon. You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, stuff happens in the media, a lot of movies, a lot of shows, a lot of books, kind of swirl around this idea of what, what is Armageddon. Uh, I think there's a new television show, I just saw it advertised this week, that is, is called, this is the title of the show, if you want to watch it, The Apocalypse and Me. And it's a comedy. You know, and it probably will be funny. <laughs> it probably will be funny. Because uh, that's what our culture does with it is let's, let's make fun of it or let's, let's have fun with it. There's nothing funny going on here. This is God desperate for people to come. Armageddon, what is it? Well, we looked at this last week that, that Armageddon literally in, in its Hebrew roots is, is two words put together, Armageddon, right? It's a place. It's a literal place. You can go to it. You can go to Armageddon. Armageddon is, is a mount. It's not a giant mountain. It's a mount. And it, it looks out over a valley, and you're able to see all directions, north, south, east, west. It's kind of that convergence of all places, right? Dan, you guys were just in Israel. You get to see Armageddon, that place. Sometimes when I think of it, I think of Psalm 23. And uh, part of that psalm is very meaningful me, to me because it, it kind of pictures this this the sense of being in that, that, that valley. Uh, yea, though I walk through the, what? Valley of death. Okay. So what is that? Well, you, when you go back and you look at ancient methodology for warfare, right, one of the things that you always do as, a, as an army is you, you scope out the area that you're going to battle in and you seek to find the highest ground. And you seek to find the highest ground that looks upon the predominant pathways, right, that your enemy will have to go through. If I'm up here overlooking a pathway that you have to go through, I'm in a position to do what? To kill you, right? You, I, I'm up here hiding, just shooting down at you. You're a sitting duck. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, what is death trying to do? I'm your enemy, and I want to take you out. I want to, to, to kill you, right? I will fear no evil. We say, you know what? Am I afraid of Armageddon? Armageddon, no, why? Because God orchestrates it. 
God is the orchestrator of Har Megiddo. Um, what is it? What is it? Well, when you look historically in the Bible, you, you find in Judges 4, 2 Kings 23, 2 Kings 9, you actually find these battles described that were fought at Harmageddon, right? Typically, they're what? They're battles that, that God wins. They're battles that God wins. So what is Harmageddon? It's, it's not a physical war. Okay, don't, don't think of it like that. I said, well, you know what? At the end of time, all these warplanes and ships and all that's going to come together. And No. Harmageddon is representative of what? A, a spiritual battle that has been going on, that is going on right now, but it's the coming together of all of those evil forces. Right? Uh, as, as when Luther wrote the Catechism, he'd say, what, are our, what is the enemy? What is the enemy? Can you identify the enemy? Yes, it's three, threefold. It's the devil. It's the world it's my flesh, right? All coming together. We could add to that. We could say, well, it's not only our, our flesh, but, but part of the enemy is death itself. All come together, and God does what? Crushes the enemy. Crushes the enemy. That's the point of Armageddon, is it's, it's meant to say that there will come, at the end of that half a time, right, this moment in time when God finally, once and for all, crushes the whole of our enemies, where there is no more sin, right? That's no longer our enemy. Where there is no more death, that's no longer our enemy. Where Satan does not have authorized access into your life, as he does right now, because he is crushed. And that's what Armageddon is representative of. When you go to this last uh, bowl, the seventh bowl, as you would predict, Seven is Jesus' number. Seven is now the completion of these plagues that have been being poured out by these angels upon earth. So this is the last plague, and, and I love the language in it because it, it kind of takes us to that, that conclusion. This is the seventh angel. I'm in verse 17 of chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. All right, so... Um, the, the temple is portrayed here as is that house of God with God sitting on the throne. So the imagery now is this one God who has crushed his enemy at the Har Megiddo now cries out with a loud voice from his, his home. And what does he say? This is, I love this language. He says, it is done. It is done. I'll tell you why I like that, that language. Um, it, it helps kind of, it, it's kind of descriptive of what I like to call the, the now and not yet motif that you'll find all the way through the Bible beginning with Genesis, okay? If somebody said to me right now, um, when, when is God going to win this war over evil. When will that happen? Well, my answer would be, he has. It's already done, right? The win is now, okay? But does it feel like he's won? Well, no, it doesn't feel like he's won. We, we turn on our TVs, we're like, no, he didn't win. Look, Cancer is killing those people, and those people have no water, and, and, and those people are at war with those people, and those people are trying to kill those people, and these people are cutting those people's out. He hasn't won. 
No, he has one. How do we know that? Well, because we have this, this word over here that comes from Jesus Christ on the cross, to telestai. Okay. So every Lent, when you go to the Good Friday service and you get to participate in what they call the tenebrae, the service of darkness, where the, the last words of Jesus Christ on the cross are read off sequentially, um, you get to that last word. It's the word where they close the book, right? Remember when you were a kid? They'd, bam, <gasps> you jump like that. Now you're old. You don't even jump. You're like, yeah, just, they just, they always close that book like that, right? <laughs> I like to be the book closer, you know, because it's kind of fun. Like, <laughs> don't have your hand inside of it, okay? Um, well, what was Jesus' last word from the cross? Well, we say it in English. How do we say it? It is finished, okay? So the Greek word here, tetelestai, is indicative of what that, that means. Teleao means to perfect something or bring it to its completion, okay? The, it's a marketplace word, and it fits beautifully with that motif that's all the way through Scripture, that because of our sin, the sin that we're we're born with, literally coming to this world with, there must be a, a payment made for us, okay? We use the term in theology, you must be redeemed. What does redemption mean? To buy something back, okay? So at creation, God looks upon his, his creatures, right? And he says uh, of man uh, and, and woman, right? It's, it's good, this is good, my, my, my creatures, okay? But at the moment of creation, prior to creation, God knows that this, these two creatures are going to do what? They're going to sin. And they're going to break his heart. And he knows what the cost of sin is. So when Adam and Eve fall, God's not surprised. He doesn't go, oh my gosh, he knows that before he even creates the being, Okay? What's always been interesting to me is when you go back into Genesis, you find just this fundamental, very fundamental language that you'll never see when you read it quickly and you just read it in English. You've read it thousands of times. You'll miss it every time. Is when God makes man and woman, it says that he blessed them and spoke unto them these words, go ye and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's how we hear it in English. Okay. So now let me do it in Hebrew. God has made this man and this woman, and he barak. He baraked them. Every time you hear the word barak, you hear that every once in a while? Okay. The Hebrew word barak means to receive God's blessing or to come underneath his covenant. Now just think about that. He's made man. Man has not fallen into sin yet. And yet he already places his covenant over him. What is that covenant about? I will save you. You don't know this, man, but you will fall and I will save you. I'm covenanting to love you. In fact, I covenanted to love you even before I created you. 
I chose to love you, even before I created. I chose to love you and make you despite my knowing that you would break my heart. That's how much God loves you. He covenanted with Adam and Eve. And he said, be fruitful. The Hebrew verb is para. Literal translation of the word would be, go and multiply my seed. How does the Savior come about? Well, the very first promise of Jesus Christ found in the 15th chapter of Genesis 3 is what? I will send my seed. So already at that point of creation, God is saying, I am going to covenant to love you and through my seed, Jesus Christ, I will redeem you. I will buy you back. Why does he have to buy us back? That's the cost of sin. Once sin enters into the world, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, still under a covenant of love, God says, I still love you, but I no longer own you. Get that? You've sinned. I, I still love you. You've sinned, but I don't own you anymore. Why? Because sin, what? Sin is a violation of God's commands. Once I sin, I am now owned by who? Satan. I'm literally owned by him. We talk about the mark of the beast, I've got it. You talk about the mark of slavery, I am in slavery. To who? To Satan. I have to be bought back. So what he's saying to Adam and Eve when he makes that covenant over them, it is through my seed that I will do what? I will buy you back. And he, what? Gives to Adam and Eve faith. Trust in that promise. We will trust your promise, God. We will believe in that seed who will redeem us. Why are Adam, how are Adam and Eve bought back? They're bought back, bought back now in their lifetime through their faith, believing in the Jesus Christ who would come. And now on the cross, when Jesus Christ cries out, tetelestai, he's saying all things have been, been complete. In marketplace language, he's saying, I've made the payment now. I paid for Adam. I paid for Eve. I paid for every one of the children of Adam all the way through to the very end of time. I've made the payment. The payment for sin is absolutely, completely finished. Now, right now. Okay. So in our lifetimes, we, New Testament Christians, look back on that cross, that event on the cross, and we're able to say, I've been paid for. I've been redeemed, bought back. When I was born in the world, owned by Satan, I bore his mark. I now bear the mark on my forehead of who? The one to whom bought me back, Jesus Christ. He now is my owner. I am his servant. This is why St. Paul, all throughout the, the, the uh, uh, New Testament, calls himself what? Doulos. I'm a slave. I was purchased. Who bought me? My owner. What did he pay for you? His entire blood, his life. He gave it for me. That's who we are. We're, we're owned by him. So we're able to say right now, in the now, we experience the it is finished of Jesus Christ. But wait a minute. You're saying it's done? It, does, it doesn't seem finished. There's still all these battles and stuff going on. When, when is it? When does God finally win? We go, he has won. He's won the battle over sin and death and the devil. But when does it come to its completion? Now you get this second word. And the word is right here. He says, this angel pours the bowl out, the voice from the throne. This is God's voice 
coming out of his temple, the place of worship, my home. He cries out, look at this second word, gegonen. Not to telestai, why? Because that's already been done. Crosses happened. Redemption has been made complete. This is gegonen, meaning now it is done. What's done? This way of life that has persisted since the day that Adam and Eve sinned. That's what's done. My authorizing of Satan to have access to people, my authorizing of death to occur in people's lives, my authorizing of those enemies is now done. I, I kind of like to I kind of like to take this word and, and play with it a little bit. I will, you know, we use this phrase in English and we go, "You're done for," right? You're done for. Um, well, that's what he's saying as to his enemies is now it's done. You're done for. All of this is over. I'm bringing it to a final completion. So where where this last bowl is taking us to is that moment in history where. All of God's enemies have been crushed. He declares it done, over with, and now we'll see the destruction of the physical earth that we now stay, stand on described here next. One last side note that's kind of fun. Um, first call that we had, uh, Ann and I, um, I, was just, I was just looking at a picture of this. I was looking at a picture, you know, you look back at a picture of yourself when you were young, and I mean, there's Ann. She still looks young, I mean, Me, on the other hand, different story. I'm standing there, I've got my cowboy boots on, you know, I've got one of those, one of those um, color, no, patch, preacher collar shirts on. Okay. I sold all mine. I don't, I don't have one anymore, but um, I, used to, I used to have those things. They'll choke you to death. I mean, they just, isn't that right, Mike? Mike's got, you got the, I'm like, oh my gosh. Anyway, I had that on, and I remember standing there. I was in San Antonio. We got the big palm trees, and all. We're like, "Where, where are we going to go? You know, where, where's God going to lead us? We'll go anywhere in the world, Lord. We'll go anywhere." And God goes, "Yeah, I'm going to send you to Iceberg, Wisconsin." <laughs> I'm like, "Really? Okay." Our first church that we served, I will never forget this. Um, the pastor that I met, we know we, you get to this church and you meet this pastor that you're going to serve with. And um, <clears throat> I was going to be the associate pastor in this church. And this guy, really a nice guy, Char Charlie Brandt comes out and um, yeah, I, I meet him. I meet his little kids. Whenever Charlie would preach, this is the best, this is so good. Um, his little boy, Joel, um, whenever Joel decided Think about this. This looks like a car. Whenever Joel decided the sermon was done, it was done. Because Charlie would be up there preaching away in the God, and Joel would stand up in the middle of the church on the church seat, and he'd go, All done, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody would laugh, and, you know, Charlie would be, Amen. <laughs> you know, what do you, what do you say to that, right? So. I kind of have that picture in my mind when I read this. It's like God going, all done, all done. Your enemies are over. There is no more. You get this. <clears throat> the language that you get next is fun unless you happen to work for State Farm or one of these insurance agencies and you're one of those guys that has to do, you know, the figure out how much to charge for insurance. Just kind of imagine this. It says, verse 18, it says, there were flashes of lightning and rumbles, P 
peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there never has been since man was on the earth. What's happening there? It's being destroyed. In this moment, physical earth is being destroyed. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. Okay. If you think of it, what, what's the great city? Okay. Well, we've been talking all along about the, the enemy, right? Who works through his agencies, two primary agencies, right? Religion, false religion. Even, even within Christianity, right? And then the political kingdom. So here it's represented as these, these two beasts, these agencies, are represented as the, the human city, right, that has stood against God for all of these years, now being completely demolished. This earthquake demolishes the great city, splits it into three parts, not accidentally. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is at work in this. It says, the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great. Remember, Babylon is always a symbol for, um, again, that, that regime of humanity that would come against God, that would take all that is holy and make it unholy. It says, to make her, I like this language, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Okay. So I, I always stop there for a minute and just remind people that all along we've been talking about God's, God's wrath and we've, we've pointed to this, this Greek word that's, that's helpful to me, thumos, right? That, that God's wrath is thumos, and I want you to hear that, that English word thermostat in it, thumos. That, that God, just like you do with your thermostat, you're like, well, we're just going to adjust it up or down a little bit. God regulates his wrath. His wrath has a primary intention, and that primary intention is, I am here to break your willful spirit against me, and bring you back to myself. That's the purpose of his wrath. It's redemptive, okay? So you would say, God is God a wrathful God? Yes, he is a, a wrathful, redemptive God. So why are you doing this hard, horrible stuff to this person or these people? I am seeking to break their stubborn will and bring them back to me, but I'm doing that in a regulated way. Okay, is there ever a time when God's wrath is not redemptive? Yes, okay? Uh, there's a time when God's wrath moves from being redemptive to being what? Now it's what? It's judgment. It's, it's judgment. The wrath of God comes upon those who are no longer redeemable in a judgmental way. You are judged, no longer redeemable. We've talked about this before, but for me, honestly, as a, as a preacher person, um, one of the hardest things in the world for me is recognizing that there are people who I'll meet, or people I know, I, who I know I've worked with and walked with before, who reach that point in their life where they commit the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? Bible says it's the sin against 
the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit occurs when what? When I have for so long what persisted in pushing the Spirit of God away, who's been trying hard to redeem me. My heart becomes so hard that I reject the Holy Spirit of God and I reach this place where God says, I now place my, no longer my redemptive wrath upon you, but my judgmental wrath. You become an object of my wrath. You receive the just reward of my wrath, which is exclusion from relationship with me forever. Okay. There are people today who I look at and, and honestly am thankful. I don't know when that happens. None of us do. You can't look at a person and say, whoop, you've done it, you've committed the unforgivable sin. And, and I'll go even so far as to say, there's people I meet who, who seem almost blasphemous in their anger towards God. You know, well, I hate God. I'm a... Actually, those people worry me less than that person who is in this superficial, I'm good with God, everything's fine with God, kind of lifestyle, and in reality, they're pushing God away and pushing God away and pushing God away because they're going to be the God in their life. That, that's what worries me. Jesus said it a little bit differently. He says, you know what? You, you, there's two things that I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't mind cold and I don't mind hot, right? Cold... I don't like that God is stupid, stupid church. I'm not going to, you know, you can't force me to. I'm like, yeah, praise God. You got something going on. That means the spirit is at least kicking inside of you, right? Or warm or hot. You know, I'm, I'm hot for God. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in love with you. Great. What does he say? I, lukewarm. I will spew you out, you out of my mouth. Judgmental wrath. You, you're no longer redeemable. You have become this person that just says, well, I'm, I'm God. I got everything under control, including Jesus Christ. I got you here in my box. Stay there. Don't tell me how to live. I will not repent. Harden the heart to that place where you no longer become redeemable. So where, where are we at in history here? No longer redemptive wrath. God says, it is done. Gegonin, I'm finished with it. And so all of his wrath coming up on the earth and those agencies that have come against him God is now placing his judgmental wrath upon them. And the language is stark. I mean, the picture that he gives you here is stark. The fury of his wrath. It's no longer thermostatic. It's like I release my entire wrath upon you, earth. Okay? Imagine this. This is the God who spoke and a sun came into being. This is the God who spoke, right, and oceans came into being. Would you like the fullness of his fury of wrath placed upon you? Not me, right? That is quite a picture there. Verse 20 says, every island fled away. <laughs> I like that language. Like, whoa, there are no more islands. No mountains were to be found. Why? Because we're destroying physical earth. Where are we, by the way, when this is happening? You and I, where are we when this physical destruction is happening? We're watching it. You get a front seat to the whole thing. First Thessalonians 4 says, here's what the resurrection looks like. The dead in Christ will rise up first. The most happening place on earth are the cemeteries. <laughs> That's where you want to be on resurrection day. You'd be like, whoa, 
this is a party happening here. Here come these bodies coming up, and uh, souls are being reunited. People are like, oh, and I haven't done that in years. <laughs> you know, uh, there's my buddy getting out of his wheelchair. He's like, I don't need this wheelchair anymore. I broke my neck when I was a, a kid. Never have walked. Look, look at me. I can. I can walk now, you know. I mean, that's the resurrection. So is the resurrection of those those who are dead shall rise up in Christ, and they shall meet me in the air. Remember, the Son of Man has always said, I will come up on a cloud. I will come in the air, in the Uranus. You'll see me in the atmosphere, okay? Then those who yet remain will join them. You're raised up, literally, off of the earth. Why? Because it's being destroyed, crushed. So you, you, you think, you think the 4th of July is, is good here, right? Uh-uh. You've never seen anything like this right here. It is the physical destruction of the earth, and it is meant to cause every person to go, whoa, yes, whoa, because God's wrath is being poured out. Verse 21 says, great hailstones. See, try telling this to your insurance agent. About 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people. Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Bam! What just hit you, 100-pound hailstone? Where are you, Dad? <laughs> you, you really don't want a 100-pound. I mean, you don't want like a quarter-sized hailstone hitting you in the head. That'll make you loopy. 100 pounds, that's bad. Just tell your insurance agents, hey, do you guys got a clause for this thing? They got the 100-pound the hailstones? I mean, imagine your house after that. It says, each fell from heaven on people and now, here, here, here's what you see at the very end. Again, those hearts that are no longer redeem, redeemable are doing what? They are blaspheming God. It says cursed in our English. Blaspheming God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Well, yeah. Um, they go out. The last, how would your last breath like to be blasphemy against God? No because now you'll be separated from him for eternity. This is where the writer is taking us to. He's John, God is saying, John, I want, you, I want you to help people know that this is what's going to happen. I'm, I'm right now thermostating my wrath, and I'm seeking to bring people back to myself, but there's going to come a time when it's no longer true, when my redemption is done, when all of it is done. And so what's the, what's the message to the church? The message to the church is one. Not, boy, we should worry about this, or, um, boy, this is scary stuff. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, in no way. The message to the church is what? God is desperate. Desperate for those who don't proclaim him as Savior to, to come to faith. Okay? So what ought a church to be? Okay? If I asked, I don't want you to answer this question out loud, but if I were to sit with our church council, and we get to do a lot of things at our church council, a lot of crazy things. I mean, you, people can come to our council meeting, right? You should come sometime. It's a lot of fun to watch Mike at work. <laughs> he says things like, I'm either going to kill it or sell it or what, I mean... Or eat it, yeah, or eat it. Shoot it, shoot it, spell it, or spray it. If we got a problem in the church, he's like, I'm going to fix that thing. I'll like, shoot it, spray it, or kill it. You know, I'm like, okay, 
Hey, we don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> we serious. We do a lot of But if I sat down with like, other, what's the most important question we get asked tonight about our church? This would be it. Is Peace Lutheran Church desperate for the lost? Can I see it? Can I feel it? If I spent a day with the people of peace, would I walk away and say, that group of people are desperate for lost people? There you go. That's what John is trying, that's what God, through John, is trying to say to the church is, I am desperate for those who don't know me because this day will come. And as you look around and see the signs of it, what do you say to yourself? I think we should have a church picnic. I don't think so. What do you say? My God, there are people in our city. In fact, the fastest growing segment of this city are those who choose to separate themselves from any kind of organized church. Does it mean they separated themselves from God? Not necessarily. But it is certainly not good. And it's, it's indicative of the time of the day that we're living in where God has said, church, wake up. Become desperate for those who do not know me. Okay. I want to introduce, so that you kind of get this, this picture in your mind, where we go from chapter 16. Okay. What we have been doing, and I think you've felt it all along, is we've been walking around in circles. Right? We've been looking at this, this time period in history that began with Jesus Christ, that concludes with his return. Over and over, we've looked at it. We've seen God escalating each time his redemptive wrath to bring people back to himself. We get the message that, guess what? Life is going to be not so good here on planet Earth. Uh, so all those things that we put our false hopes in, like the uh, stock market and our retirement stuff, all that stuff that we think is going to, you know, make us secure. All that will go away like that. The moment the half a time begins. Promise you. Okay? So where do you go from here? The way that this outlines is, is chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 are going to present to us now what we're going to call the closing scenes of history and time. There's four of them. Okay? So in scene number one, we're going to, to see something that we've, we've already seen it. There's nothing new when you get to the end of Revelation. You've seen all of it, but it's going to be represented in a powerful way. Scene number one is going to be the destruction of the dragons. I call them henchmen or agencies. Okay, so we've said there's these two agencies, false religion and, and governments. We see the destruction of those agencies. Scene number two is going to be a song. Okay, the song of victory. Uh, we're going to hear, you know, you, you almost hear heaven. Uh, all this all this time, you know, the, the martyrs in heaven have been crying out, how long, oh God, how long? Now we erupt in a song that says victory, that all done song is what we're going to hear. And then we get to see finally the overthrow of the dragon himself. Okay, your agencies are done in, you're done in, okay? Um, and then la lastly, the last scene in Revelation, the 21st chapter, we get to see two things. We get to see a marriage take place. <clears throat> and, um, you know, Pastor Mike right now is leading a, leading a class on, on marriage that comes out of an a understanding of marriage that is radically different, radically different than 
the, the idea of marriage that most people in the world have and that most people in the secular church have. Most people are part of what I call the secular church in America. And it's picture of marriage. What we, you know, what we were, tra- what I was trained to do here, get, get couples together and go through this. Doesn't even come close to grasping the true meaning of marriage. I, I really strongly, you know, we'll do this class again and probably again. But if you have young young ones that are coming up that are going to get married, absolutely, get this understanding into you of what marriage is meant to be. Because marriage, our marriages here in this world are meant to prepare us for this marriage right here. That's their whole purpose. They're meant to get us ready for the marriage that is going to take place. At creation, we always say, God the Father created us. Until you study Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and you see that, oh no, guess what? God the Father isn't alone. He's a trinity, right? And the beautiful, intimate picture that we get of creation is in Colossians, where it says, You were made by Jesus for Jesus. You're his bride. That's what he made you for, to spend eternity with you. He initially intentioned that, and it's why you see him literally walking in the garden in the beginning of time. Where is he? He's here. He's on earth. You can hear him walking in the garden. There's an intimacy there, broken by sin. What will we return to? A new earth and a marriage between Jesus Christ and those who he made, both physically and then made through faith. That's what we're coming to. And then we see the restoration, what we call the the new heavens and the new earth. And the pictures there can be a little confusing, so we want to walk through them, make sure we understand what they are. What was helpful in all this, I think, is it allows us as a body of people to use biblical language when we talk about death, when we talk about the resurrection, when we talk about heaven, I think most of the time uh, Christians use language that is incorrect when they talk about heaven. What is it, uh, and what's the difference between that and new earth? We'll try to get into all of that. Let's pray. Lord God.